Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Liv Burry. Liv is the former World Series of Poker and European Poker Tour champion. She's a television commentator, a science nerd, and a philanthropist. Liv, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Oh, thank you. A lot of entrepreneurs today are focused on you know consumer products or ads or B two B software. How can we, as a society, incentivize more entrepreneurs and funding to work on and fund more these kind of moonshot projects? Potentially cause like step function progress and civilization. How do we incentivize them more? Well, or how do we get more people working on these like super right. hard things rather than? You know, some additional push notification software. Nothing right, against right. that, but this great, valuable thing. But eh, yeah, I mean, I think you need more of the sort of Elon effect type people. You know, I think in some ways, I don't know if there's any way you could truly create new Elons through a sort of systemic change. And by Elons, I mean, you know, like people who are willing to just like have unbelievably audacious grand visions and make a lot of personal sacrifices together. But even him, like his first couple of startups, especially like Zip2 is, I don't know, it's kind of interesting, but it wasn't as nearly as audacious. Like you, he had to get to 100 million plus of net worth before he had the kind of the ability to be more audacious. Right, 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 right. But it seems like he's had that, you know, Mars has been a long time plan for him. Doing something very big and grand has always been a plan. I, I, feel, I feel like from what I understand, Zip2 and that sort of thing were kind of, he saw them as stepping stones, basically, as a way to accumulate enough capital, right? And he wasn't just then going to be satisfied with that. So I think by and large, you just need, you just need your society to like a certain percentage of, a very small percentage, but a certain percentage of people will be born with these kind of traits, I think. And the question is, how do we make sure that they don't go to waste? So one thing perhaps society could do to actually create it's not that it needs necessarily better incentives. It just needs better nurturing of these like really unique individuals, you know, super high IQ, super big dreamers and people who are willing to like just dedicate, you know, like this like deep monofocus that it requires to achieve such like huge goals. We need to create systems whereby, you know, those rare gems don't slip through the net. Like there's a billion people in India and that means there's going to be so many like geniuses hidden in there somewhere, but who knows? They're like born into some poor village and we never get to hear about them. So how do we build structures whereby these highly intelligent, highly focused big dreamers get caught by society and are enabled to do stuff to fulfill, fulfill their potential? Can we think of it the other way? Like all these super smart, super high potential people, many of them astrophysicists and stuff, became hedge fund managers in the last 30 years and you know maybe had a certainly increased their wealth but didn't necessarily like add a ton to society those same people in the 50s and 60s the same exact person may have been doing something very very contributory or something that, that added a lot more or building or something but the you know I, I don't blame them i mean the the hedge fund incentive 10 to 100x the incentive they have for the other path so how do we kind of like do we change the incentive of the other path or do we lower the hedge fund incentive well i think some people will just value money right there are some 
hyper smart people who think that money is the instrumental tool for them. But certainly Elon Musk values money like Oh, for sure. One of his most important values, right? So, you know, and, and yes, many, many he, successful people I think people he, he sees money, uh, you know, people like him see money as an instrumental goal, not an end goal. Whereas like the hedge fund manager example who you're talking about, right? They see presumably money as the end goal. I don't think so. I think maybe I'm wrong, but I, I would say all of them probably value status over money and they constantly are paying for status. Well, obviously you can use money to buy status, but there's other ways you can get, you know, if you're a U.S. senator or something like that, you have status too, right? So, right. Well, you can't buy status is one thing. Legacy is another thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And they buy legacy. They do things like that to, you know, like you incentivize. Do you want to have a a city named after you someday, or some kind of incredible scientific breakthrough that you funded? Like, so basically, you need to incentivize them to do something that helps the world. Because if you help the world, you're going to get far more like brownie points and bigger legacy and celebration. Yeah, you know, they all endow a chair of whatever at Harvard at some point or something, just so they. But can... even that has become like lower signaling value. Right, right, that's true. In fact, it might be negative signaling nowadays. Right. Seriously, no. It, I was I was actually thinking about this. Like, if I was trying to hire someone, because now you can say do a Coursera course from you know Stanford or whatever. I think I would value someone who completed, you know, an engineering course, a Stanford engineering course on Coursera at age 30 than someone who went, who got into Stanford and actually did it themselves. Because the person who's gone through the, the rigmarole of, of completing that course online without necessarily even going to get any credit for it, that actually means they love engineering and they want to do engineering. Whereas someone who's going to Stanford to do engineering, maybe they love engineering, but maybe they want to get that signaling the signal prestige of going to Stanford, which is certainly, you know. Well, yeah, I'll take you. it one step further, which is like, if they took the Coursera course with the Stanford engineering team, they're probably still trying to signal. If they took it with like just a random university that was known to have a good professor who was really good at teaching or something, and they probably care much more about learning stuff because I, I found there is a somewhat of an anti-correlation. The better the school, usually the professors are worse teachers. Certainly when I was an engineer, all the Nobel laureates couldn't teach at all. Every physics class I took with a Nobel laureate was, was horrible. And the best class I ever set. took was like a visiting random class I took from a San Jose State professor, nothing in San Jose State. Probably a very fine institution, but it's not as known as a as a difficult school to get into. But the teachers there really know how to teach, and he was just phenomenal at teaching engineering. Whereas my teachers at UC Berkeley, they were much more good at doing research, and they they had a very very tough time teaching undergrads. Yeah, I think I noticed roughly the similar thing actually. There was only a couple of famous professors at my university. Yeah, I mean certainly Richard Feynman is a great teacher, but he's almost the exception rather than the rule. Right. Yes. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a rare egg for sure. You talk a lot about how like aspects of AI worry you. And you know, one of the interesting pieces I read recently was by Gary Marcus. He wrote about the deep learnings hitting a wall. And he basically notes that like GPT-3 is still very error prone. AI misinterprets like radiology scans by a mile. Do you feel like AI is something we should be super concerned about? Or where do you fall on that kind of, that kind of controversy? Oh, I think we... You should be super concerned about it. Yes. Just because the risks are so high or because the probability is high? 
more that the risks are high, you know, if, even if it's a very low probability that, you know, we actually create some very powerful or, you know, super intelligent system, the consequences in either direction, if it goes really well or if it goes really badly, are so high that we need to take it extremely seriously. And for every dollar that's spent on safety and like making sure things are done well, it's well over a hundred dollars are spent on just sheer progress. So there's a deep imbalance there. There's, you know, there's massive incentive pressures to build bigger and better systems, you know, because there's multiple AI, AI companies out there now. You know, if there was just one, like there was seven years ago, then or 10 years ago, then it wouldn't really be such an issue because they could just take their time. But now there's multiple out there. There's, you know, competitive pressures making everyone it makes it much harder to optimize for safety. But yeah, you mentioned like GPT-3. Oh, it's error prone. Well, I don't know. I was just looking into some of the language models more recently. I don't know if you've seen this Palm one, the Google AI recently. I think they, it was, I think it was them. So GPT-3, I think had 170 billion parameters that it was like using. And this Palm one has about 3X of that. It's 500 or so billion. And yet the quality of... I don't know if you've seen what this thing can do, but it's it's doing like lot. It doesn't just like answer like if you ask it, what's you know I have six six oranges and seven apples, and then I take away three apples. How many do I have left? Not only can it answer what the correct answer is like numerically, like a sort of six year old would do, it can even describe to you its chain of reasoning. So it'll be like, well, so before that you had this many apples and oranges, and when you take them away, that you know it answers it like like a smart nine-year-old would answer the question if you asked them to say, show your learning. It's absurd. And what's so interesting about that is that they historically thought that as you add more parameters, you're going to get sort of diminishing returns. It's sort of going to, you know, it seemed to sort of scale kind of linearly in terms of performance, but then they assumed that like it's going to start diminishing off. But what this has actually shown is that it, as you add more parameters, it goes super linear. It's really, but yeah, like they, they saw some graph and literally shows that this thing, the more you add, the better it gets, which suggests that there's like some kind of emergent properties that are happening, you know, presumably like combinatorial explosions or something like that. And it's just creating this like sort of exponential potential for more, greater complexity and thus intelligence. So, and what's interesting is like, I don't know if you're familiar with Metaculus, it's like a community prediction site. It's really cool. It's like a community of people who are just really interested in the future and making predictions, formal predictions. And so it then... It's a prediction market or... Yeah, it's a prediction market, basically. I think it's one of the best tools we have for sort of crowdsourcing, well, like looking at accurate predictions of when like major events are likely to happen. So the community average had always been that AGI, if you're familiar with that term, you know, artificial general intelligence, is likely to emerge around 2042. Based upon this Palm AI information, it, they have now updated it to 10 years away. 10, 2032. Yeah, it's insane. That's like the biggest jump I've seen on there. And, and I think the Metaculus is probably our best resource of actually making, of like what the likely timelines are for this. So it's such a huge update. What can we do to, if it's that close, what can we do to make it safer? I mean, it's a very, I, I don't have a good answer to that. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on this by any means. I think we can reward companies that, you know, actively demonstrate that they are thinking about sort of 
the dual use of these things. I mean, because even like AGI itself is not that, I mean, that's a concern, but even these like, like narrow AI misuses, you know, like TikTok terrifies me, honestly, because it's just like, it's gaining so much data particularly from like the neurochemical drama. Of so there's leaders. some government regulation that could come in to at least slow it down, you think, or? I don't necessarily think government regulation is even the best route. Part of the problem is that actually like there's this like scientific incentive, you know, all the journals like nature, science, et cetera, everyone is like chasing after prestige points, right? Like individual researchers, understandably, what they are optimizing for is getting published, getting their names on big papers, making groundbreaking progress in AI or whatever scientific field it is. And all the while that they are rewarded by, you know, Nature Magazine or whoever for making big, making strong progress, then that's all they're going to optimize for. Whereas like, if like Nature was like, every time someone submits a paper with a technology that has potential dual use, as in like it could be for good, but also could be very dangerous. They actually don't publish it, for example, or publish it with like a big asterisk saying this could potentially be bad. Now, all of a sudden you're changing the incentive structures and that's what we need to do. And I think government is not necessarily going to be the best way to do that. Whereas like the individual scientific journals couldn't change those. They wield a lot of power because ultimately scientists Obviously, they're like, most of them are actually looking, you know, they're trying to solve big mysteries and help people, but they are also incentivized to win prizes, Nobel prizes, that sort of thing. And this would be a way of changing the incentive structures. Interesting. So Lenin had this quote that the the capitalists will sell us the rope to hang them. And in some ways, it's similar where we're doing these things to really promote this AI. How do we change the incentive or how do we work with these publications or Obviously, these are smart people that run the publications, but to encourage these labels or encourage different type of review. I don't know I can answer that because I haven't thought about it deeply enough. Honestly, I don't have an answer to that. I think it's a anyone who's good at thinking about incentive structures and understands sort of like essentially the capitalistic model of science should be putting their mind to this. I don't think governments are the way to go on this. They don't understand the problem enough. They would probably likely do more harm than good because it's like Western governments would shut down like the good Western companies, for example, you know, because this is a, this is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just like America, you know, the people I know who are working at Western AI companies are brilliant, good people thinking about safety very, very well. So we want more of them. We want them to be actually free to do their work. And it's more the like, the TikToks of the world and so on that I think we should, you know, if anything needs government or regulation, it's those guys more. So yeah, I don't, I, I can't answer that question of like how to, like what we should be saying to the scientific journals or how to approach that topic. But I think it's something worth thinking about. I had a couple of questions about like probabilities and stuff. People are generally not very good at understanding probabilities and those who think probabilistically seem to be well rewarded. How can people better apply a probabilistic lens just to their everyday life? Hmm. Well, the way I sort of trained myself to do it, because obviously I, I play poker and poker is very much, you know, not only do you have, you've got the civil sort of simple probability calculations of like, well, I know that there are three aces left in the deck. So the likelihood that I'm going to hit the ace that I need is X or whatever. But it also trains you to, think probabilistically about sort of the like these more fuzzy uncertainties 
like, oh, well, I noticed that, you know, when I made this bet that he took this big inhale, which seemed very naturally reactive as opposed to like faked. But what probability do I give it that he's actually faking it versus this? Because the trouble is, is that we usually go about our lives thinking, oh, he's probably bluffing me. Most of the time this is going to happen. You know, these we use words to describe our uncertainty as opposed to actual quantified numbers. And so just building the habit of trying to estimate likelihoods around things we never normally would. So literally just trying to put a number like, what is the probability this person is bluffing right now or the probability that this agent who says that they can't do this for me actually can't do it for me or something like that. Just random things that happen in your everyday life. Yeah. And I mean, the, the sort of counter argument to that that people have made is, well, yeah, but now you're applying like false granularity. You know, if you say, oh, well, 33% of the time my agent is going to come back and say this, you're implying that, you know, you have really good epistemics around this, but I, I just don't think that's the case because if you, then you can just update them or something like that. And- yeah. You, or you can sort of think about it in a range, be like, okay, well, I know it's it's less than half the time. So it's certainly under 50%, but it's more than one in 10. So it's greater than 10%. And you can like sort of iterate until you sort of converge on what feels like a reasonable percentage. And just like building, like build the habit of making like three formal predictions about things per day, for example. And, you know, by a formal prediction, I mean like this will happen by this time with this frequency, you know, this frequency, this percentage, this will happen, you know, I, or I'm sorry, I'm 20% confident that this is going to happen. And I'm 85% confident this is going to happen. What would be an example of something random that we could do that with? Well, like I like make eggs for my kids in the morning and I would say like a very high percentage of the time, but not 50% of the time, some of the eggshell ends up in the bowl. You know, I just like, I'm not great at cracking the egg yet. I'm like, I could make a prediction about that. I say, oh, it's a 33% chance that my eggshell is going to end up in the bowl. Yeah, that's a great example. I love that. Okay. Especially because you could do it with the kids and get them. Get know, them they, into it. Yeah. Exactly. They'll get into it. It's like, oh, dad, we found some today. Oh, well, let's write <laughs> it down. And you can start like recording data. You know, eventually you'll get like an N of 30 and it starts to become statistically meaningful. No, I, I love that. That's a great, that's a great example. An example I always like to give, not just of thinking probabilistically, but of thinking in terms of expected value, which is even more useful, is like you are running late for an important meeting, you can't find a parking space, and you have to decide whether or not just to park illegally or not. So then it's a question of like, okay, well, what's my my expected loss of actually being late or missing the meeting? You know, let's say it's going to cost you thousand dollars on expectation in terms of like missed opportunity. Okay. Well, what's my expected loss of parking illegally? Let's say you think you're going to get caught 20% of the time. And if you do, you're going to get a ticket that's a hundred dollars. So actually your expected loss there is 20 bucks on average. So actually it makes sense to take the gamble and park illegally. Obviously I'm not advocating for that, but you know, that's a classic example of using expected value thinking that is, it's such a simple formula but it's so powerful and it drives me nuts that this is not taught. I mean, this should be taught in kindergarten or not kindergarten, but certainly in like K-12 and it's not. I mean, I, I studied physics. I never learned it. It wasn't until I just became a professional poker player that I learned about expected value as a concept, which is just mind blowing. I mean, maybe they teach it in business school. Do they teach it in like business school? Or I don't know. I didn't go to business studied. school, but certainly I did a lot of probability in college. So, but that was my weird, my oh, weird. So you nature. did learn it there. 
Yes. When I was in college, we did a ton of like operations research and things like that. I guess today they might call it data science where we learned those types of things. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to know. It is taught somewhere, but I don't know. It should, it should just be part of the math curriculum for like 14 year olds. because it's, it's so I, I certainly agree. Yeah. I certainly use all this stuff all the time, whereas I don't use any of my calculus. Yeah. And probably spend, I, I mean, and I still probably I spend a lot more time learning calculus, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Trigonometry. I just haven't used it once since. And I yeah. did, you know, I do mathy things. One piece of advice that I give young people is to not optimize for optionality. You know, young people often pick careers that give them the greatest amount of flexibility and optionality to kind of to reduce risks. And in some ways, that's, you know, at least my opinion is it could be a recipe for like a mediocre career or career that you're less satisfied with. But that could be like counterintuitive when thinking probabilistically about outcomes versus like risk versus reward. How do you think about my advice? You think it's decent or you think it's, it's flawed or? My gut into it, you know, reaction to that is, oh, that's wrong. But I'm not sure why. I don't know. I, I guess it's just from like my personal life journey. I felt like having maximum optionality was beneficial to me because you know, I'm very happy with how things turned out. And, you know, I like that I had maximum options of which subject I chose as university, but I don't know, maybe that's just like some survivor bias talking, you know, I, like, I, of course, I'm going to think that having maximum option value was good for me because I happen to be. But did you, did you choose what you did because you were trying to maximize for optionality? Like the typical thing is somebody chooses to go to law school, not because they want to go to be a lawyer because they, they love the law, but they choose to go to law school because, well, it's good optionality. Um, I know I can get some job if I need it. And, and it sets me up to do other things. Or So it's kind of a typical, that would be like a typical choice. Or I, you know, it's kind of the reason people choose to go to McKinsey. Well, I don't know if I really want to be a consultant, but I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll learn something and be kind of interesting. And you know, it looks good on my resume. I mean, I think it just depends on the person. Like if you know already what you want to do. Like if you're, again, going back to the beginning, like if you're like an Elon Musk type, big visionary, then perhaps if you already know what you want to do, then why waste time going and doing a sort of more general thing that like gives you maximum option value might not make sense. But if you don't know what you want to do, then I think doing, you know, one of the reasons I chose to study physics, I mean, I loved it, but I wasn't dead certain that I was going to become an astrophysicist. I could have done engineering, like I like that too. But in the end, I chose physics because I felt like it was more broadly applicable. And yeah, I don't know. It's it is definitely a trade-off because certainly, like right now, I actually don't like how much optionality I have because I'm like, I want to get back into. Now I've got my new house. I'm getting my little studio set up. I want to get back into content creation. And honestly, I have like, I just have deep option anxiety because I'm like, do I make a series on this or do I focus on this? Or maybe I start a podcast or maybe I do this. And I, I, I honestly, I want like someone smarter than me who knows me very well and who knows what's good for the world to like, just go, no, focus on this and basically be my boss and tell me what to do. So yeah, I, 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 it can be a blessing or a curse, but in terms of like choosing and like the career advice I give to people, and this sort of also applies to like you know, if you're age 18 and choosing what to study at university is don't necessarily think about what your particular passion is. Think about what will help the world. Because if you focus on doing something that will help the world, you are going to get rewarded for that much more often. 
and people are going to want to help you. And that's going to build you a stronger network, you know, a stronger social capital, and then and more money, basically, in fairly early on, because you've got people working to help build you up and help you achieve what what you know what you've set out to do, and that will you know reap dividends, you know, say like compound interest over the later years in your life when you then have the flexibility if you want to go back and pursue that passion, the original thing that you thought was your passion. So. A friend of mine gave a really good TED talk on this, basically. He, he gives career advice for people who are interested in effective altruism, which is effectively like, how do you make the biggest positive impact on the world with your life? And his advice is just focus on something that you know that the world really needs. Start on that. And then you'll find time to do your other passions as well. If they truly are your passions, you'll make it happen. But chances are the, the thing that the world needs will turn into your passion because it's going to be so rewarding. One other thing on the optionality on the personal side, it does seem like like the ultimate elimination of optionality is getting married, right? The smarter the person often, the more they are delay that, delay the getting married side. So that's another way of showing how like super smart people are kind of like very someone could say undervaluing, someone could say overvaluing optionality. And I don't know, that's necessarily at the right median point. Mm. Yeah, I mean the marriage thing is Certainly, I, I, I remember having, a, from a young age, I had, the, I had a strict rule with myself. I will not get married before the age of 30. Really? That yeah. was just in your was, head somehow. It was just always in my head. And I don't know how why. Did you, like, how did that come about? It was like, you read it in a book or something? Or like, how did it- I mean, I didn't have much respect for marriage because like, my parents divorced when I was 10. You know, there was a lot of divorce in my family. And what was interesting is that the divorces all worked out really well. You know, my parents divorced and then they ended up getting married to the best possible step parents. Like I'm as close to my both my step parents as I am to my to my you know birth parents. So I it was so much better for me. Like instead of being in like having two miserable parents, I ended up having so essentially very happy ones. The date I mean it's an N of one data point, but the, the data point is they got married too early. And if they had just waited a little bit, they would have found a much better compatible person or something like that. Yes. Yes. And I mean, for a while, it made me think that, oh, we're just not designed to, you know, there is no such thing as a soulmate. There is no such thing as one person for everybody. And I mean, I don't know. I'm still on the fence with that. I think it it just varies. Some personality types need more variety. Some people do really well with monogamy. I actually always assumed I was someone who just needed to have, I'm going to have like lots of relationships throughout my life because I get bored quickly and that sort of thing. But then actually I met my partner, Igor, who, you know, well now eight years ago and we've been together now so happily and I can't imagine going you know like life without him yeah it's <laughs> it's just so great and I don't know so that made me think that soulmates are a thing you know what I mean <laughs> okay that brought me back to it I will not but... settle down and now I'm like so happily settled down and like <laughs> it's just so it's it's just like swings and roundabouts but I that said I liked I know it's interesting that not getting married until 30 was in my head. I don't know why. I think I was like 15 or so. And I just said, no, I'm not doing this. I can't say I thought about it that deeply. It was just like, I think I was probably just saying it to sound cool, honestly, to my friends. But the point is I had that and it happened to be the case. Interesting. All right. Well, a couple more personal questions before we close. I know a few years ago, you learned how to fly a plane, which from Um. my standpoint, (laughs) as someone who thinks like thinking probabilistically, there's some definitely inherent risk in that particular endeavor. Like, how did you think about that from like a risk perspective? Well, I can't say I thought that. I mean, I wasn't like I was learning, taking flying lessons, in, you know, in a little Cessna or whatever, which does have 
reasonable enough risk that it's warranted to calculate. Like I think you're referring to a video I posted that was in a friend's plane who he's a pilot and he's like, can I teach you? Like, let's, let's go have a lesson. So I felt incredibly safe there because it was a, it was, it wasn't just like a little Cessna B he knows what the hell he's doing. And it's not like I'm just in control and making any kind of significant risk. But that said, I, I guess like if something has more, then so like what is I think I'm trying to remember what the number is but I think we all have like a one someone of my age has a one in one thousandth chance of dying each year it's probably right for someone your age yep yeah it's like my age is probably one percent yeah yeah probably not that much but like I don't know it's probably like one one in three hundred something like that so you just need to look at what your baseline rate of dying is for your demographic and age and health and so on and then if something if an activity you're going to do is significantly above that, well, now it's probably worth reconsidering. So now it's a question of like, what's the payoff? Like how good, how much pleasure are you going to get out of it? Are you going to get three years worth of pleasure? Then sure, go for it. Yeah. And and so on. So I think that's the sort of main starting point, but then beyond that, it becomes pretty subjective. But yeah, people don't even, that's the thing. People, the main mistake people make with their risk calculations is they don't ever look at the baseline. Right. You know, it's it's like, oh, this is really dangerous. It's like dangerous compared to what? Like dangerous compared to just so spending when I'm another day? I'm just going to like, I'm going to be like doing some crazy shit when Absolutely. I'm 100 years old. Oh like, my God. Yeah. yeah. Like okay. you should be, you should be going up in risk. Absolutely. Interesting. And people don't do that. Yeah. Most people do the opposite. They go down in risk over time. Yeah. And I, I, I'd like to think I would become, let's say if I think the risk from various existential risks, whether it's nuclear war or whatever, whatever, are like mounting significantly, then that should change my calculus of things that I've been fearful of doing. Like I've interestingly never done a parachute jump and I'm weirdly scared of it, which doesn't make sense for my personality type because I love things about like, I love roller coasters and so on. But for some reason, I've always had like a bug in my head about doing a parachute jump. But if, for example, my concerns about AI or synthetic biology or whatever have gone up, which they have, I should probably be more embracing of these risks, which perhaps would have been above my comfort level before. Well, I can tell you as someone who doesn't like roller coasters and who has done a parachute jump, it was the scariest thing I'd ever done. And I will never do anything like that again oh, in my interesting. life. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Were you like scared up until that moment that the parachute successfully deployed? Or I was scared all the way through until my legs hit the ground, but I'm, I'm a wow. little bit of a scaredy cat in general. So good for you for uh, doing it though. Nice. <laughs> all right. Last question. We ask all of our guests, what is the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice? I guess my personal, my personal bugbear is when people are like, they over rely on intuition, gut instinct, whatever you want to call it. And they, they treat it as this like one size fit all perfect answer to difficult problems. Yeah, I went into this in like my TED talk. I hopped on about it so much. If you Google intuition, the kind of responses you get are these like inspirational memes, usually on Instagram, where it's like, always trust your gut feelings. It's never wrong. 100%. If in doubt, go with your gut. And it's just terrible advice because having played poker for a decade, even after, you know, even when I was a very experienced player, I would have like, sometimes someone make a big bet and my gut would say, Oh my God, they've got, they've got the stronger hand than you. You know, basically I'd have a very strong intuitive feeling so strong that I would ignore what the math says. Cause usually, you know, there's, 
you're getting a certain number of odds and you know that with certain hands you can just mathematically call and you're not making, you know, that's the correct play. But I've overridden that because I had such a strong gut feeling to the contrary. And then my gut feeling turned out to be wrong. That's happened to me. Like I can think of like three occasions where it happened for when I had a lot of money on the line and it, I was just like, oh, it's so strong. I have to go with it. Like I has so much more experience, something happening that I don't know about. And it was just dead wrong. And I felt like a fucking idiot. So and that's, that's just true for all of us. And the, the trouble is, is that like, obviously intuition can be an incredibly powerful tool. The trouble is, is that we need to know what kind of scenarios to use it for. And this one size fit all ethos that people have with it is just wrong. So basically it seems like, like with all things, the more experience we have, the better our intuitions are at that, you know, experience that we have in a certain type of decision, the better our intuitions will be around it. Makes sense because like, if we think that intuition is just a result of like unconscious processing going on in our brains, then basically it still means it requires data. The heuristic that I've used, I'd be interested in your thoughts on. So in a different way, but let's say as an investor, let's say say in the end, you're deciding to invest or not invest in this particular project or something. And what I have done is if my intuition says to invest, then I use data, but I don't use it to actually make the decision. But if it says to not invest, because there could be like some scam or some other type of thing that I might not be able to figure out with data, then I'll usually go with the gut to not invest. That doesn't always work. So sometimes the things that my intuition says don't invest in were good investments and I should have invested in it. But at least historically, it seems to work better than, than, than not. Right. So you use it as like a primary filter to then decide whether or not you go and do like further investigation. On the to invest, but if my intuition says don't invest in this deal, you don't. I just don't. don't I just don't invest. I just don't. I don't invest no matter what in that deal. Again, not that's not always. Sometimes I should have invested. Right, you're going to have an error rate. The question is, is like how? Yeah, it's it's a trade off between how much because if you had infinite time, you would presumably just like look at the data on everything, but you can't. So you have to like how how do you find a a sort of healthy balance there? Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. But again you've been investing for many years, right? You've seen tons of companies that you said yes to, you said no to. So you've got a lot of experience in this. This would probably would have been a bad thing to do 20 years ago when you were first starting out because your intuitions just hadn't had chance to gather any data yet. And so they are not going to be that useful. And that's the mistake people make is that they think that, because often a lot of the really tough decisions we make in life are these like really rare things. Like, should I get married to my current partner or should I should I buy this house as opposed to this one? And the typical advice people say, you know, give to each other in that is like, oh, I don't know. That's a tough one. Just go with your gut. And it's like, no, because you don't have any data. Even my case, my gut said, don't do something. I wouldn't do it. If the gut, like if you're, I don't know, someone asks you on a date or something and your intuition says, I don't, I don't think I should go out with this person or I don't think I should buy this house or something like that. Then I would just say, don't just trust your gut to not do something, but don't trust your gut to do something. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, with the, with the, like the going on a date thing, the thing is, is that actually that's something we have, even if you don't go on many dates, you have what you're still doing is basically you're doing a personality assessment on people. And we do that all the time. We've been doing that since, you know, we could talk. Right. So our intuitions are typically very good at reading people. It's one of the things they're better suited for again, because we've been like, we have a lot of even probably knowledge we've inherited from our parents. And I think there's probably some kind of information that we, we gain just sort of through our lineage about like social dynamics. So that's an example of where intuition is 
that doesn't go against my rule of thumb, but it's interesting that you basically use it as a like a loss aversion tool as opposed to a gain, gain maximization tool. The tiger might be in the jungle type of thing. The trouble with that is that thinking back to like poker, most humans have a greater loss aversion than they do, you know, like it hurts us more to lose something we already have than it makes us happy to gain it when we didn't have it before. So it means that we have an innate bias towards loss aversion, even our intuitions do. So that means we probably over, if you always listen to your intuition on every time it says, oh, don't do that, you're probably over missing out on stuff because of that inbuilt baked in loss aversion that we all have. How much do you think poker actually helps? Because in some ways, poker is like a weird game where it's a game, there's rules, you're kind of like, you've got a certain number of chips that you're playing and stuff like that. And, you know, it's like my main advantage in playing poker is just I've chose not to play the poker game, right? Because there's infinite number of games you can play and you want to play games that you know, you have some, or maybe not infinite, but there's a lot of games you can play. And you want to play games you have some sort of advantage in. And part, part of poker, you know, one thing is poker is just like staying power. You just have to like be around for six hours and fresh. And, you know, it's like, it's a tiring game where, you know, often ends at four in the morning or something. Right. So how much do you think we can really learn from poker? I think it's one of the best games out there to teach people how to be better decision makers in life. Just because like, because classically people are always resulting and stuff. Yes. People are always resulting. It taxes you in many different ways in terms of it makes you mentally model people. So it's like, there's a lot of psychology. It makes you work with literal, you know, odds and statistics. So there's a lot of like quantified statistical reasoning. There's like layers of strategy. And then there's like dealing with like high stress environments, like how to decision make when you've got like actual, you know, something that you really care about on the line. So it's just such a great like training ground for the kinds of decision-making you make in, in any form of life, but especially in business. But what's nice about it is that it's got much tighter feedback loops than almost anything else we do. We typically get to find out whether we were right or wrong. Now, not always, because obviously there's some stuff where like, you know, you go on a long losing streak and like, maybe you got unlucky, maybe you're playing bad, like it's that. But even then you can usually find out because nowadays there are even like solvers that will show you what the correct mathematical solution is to things. So you can literally go and compare like, well, I did this. Oh, well, actually I should be doing this with this frequency. And so the best analog to the messiness of like real life decision-making I've seen within a game and it's got these nice tight feedback loops. So I wouldn't recommend to anyone to go out and try and be a professional anymore. I think, I think that's career is by and large done, honestly, just because of AI. Like we now have like super intelligent AIs that people can, you know, certainly online poker, there was like a big cheating scandal that literally just came out this week. I was reading about because oh, it turns out, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. People are using these real time game theory, optimal like solvers, basically that, you know, it would usually take like six hours to run one of these to get the solutions. So you could never actually use it while you're playing online. It's more about just going away and studying and then go to play. But apparently they've now got them down to like under one minute in just a few years. So it just means that the trust is gone. You can't go and play high stakes online poker anymore and assume that you're playing a fair game. So it doesn't make sense to go out and try and learn poker as a means of making money, as, as a way of making a living. But I think it makes a lot of sense to go out and learn it as a means of learning how to understand your own mind and other people's minds and how to make high stakes decisions under a lot of pressure in a very complex environment. 
All right. This is great. Liv Marie, thank you for being on the World of Dads with us. I follow you on Twitter. Where is that the best place for people to find you on the interwebs? Yeah. Twitter is where I just like tweet insane things. That's my most high, you know, my high frequency posting. But what I really want everyone to follow me on, go and subscribe to my YouTube because I'm now here I am in my cool little new studio. The plan is to make more video content, which is like my real passion. So please go subscribe to me there. Okay, great. And for those of you who, for those who are listening, it's B-O-E-R-E-E is your last name. So please make sure you go do that. Thank you, Liv. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. 